Hopefully you've turned your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 3 already. We're continuing our series through this letter by the Apostle Paul. It's October and it kind of feels like fall, maybe a little bit in the mornings, right? But I don't know if it does by the time uh, 1 or 2 o'clock hits today when it's about 80 degrees outside. You with me? doesn't quite feel all the way like fall. Um, you know, I think you see people wish it was fall, right? You see people like they, they start wearing scarves and flannels and like there's something, you know, it's October. It should be cool by now. But it doesn't matter how much pumpkin spice we put into things. Fall doesn't always just appear like that. But I think all of us have a little bit of a longing to, to have just that crisp, cool fall mornings and afternoons um, that we sometimes get, sometimes don't get here in Georgia. Um, I know I, I took a trip, this was a while back. I actually told this story in the first service completely wrong. Uh, I mean, not completely, but my wife uh, was in the first service and she came up to me afterwards and was like, well, we actually were married on that trip that you were talking about and we actually went here and not there. So. I got a few of the details wrong in the first service, but it, overall it was pretty good. Um, I didn't even ask her about the rest of the sermon, so I just kind of stopped there. Okay, that's all. Um, but we, uh, we took a trip, it was my wife and I, and, and we, I think we were just married. Let's go with that, okay? We were pretty almost newlyweds. Uh, we've been married 16 years, so uh, it was probably about 16 years ago. And we went up to Vermont. and. And when, like the whole purpose was, like my parents planned this trip, we tagged along with them. The whole purpose was to experience a New England fall that everyone kind of thinks of when they think of fall. And uh, we did the whole tourist kind of thing. We, you know, we went around and looked at leaves on hillsides. It was, it was great. Um, I promise it was, okay? No, it was, it was beautiful. The scenery was beautiful. We went to covered bridges, small towns, that whole thing. We had a great trip, but there was one part of the trip that, w that was really, really cool to me. And, and I, it was unexpected. We, uh, and I, I, she couldn't even help me out with this. I don't remember what led us to do this, but there was a trail. We were, we're out exploring a little bit. There's a trail where like, hey, we should hike this trail. But none of us were dressed appropriately. None of us were ready for this kind of hike, but we saw the trail. We weren't sure where it led. We just knew it was leading up. And we said, okay, let's go. So we start making our way up. And this is kind of the part I want you to get here because when you look around at the surroundings of this hike, it was pretty spectacular as an outsider. But I had this thought, you know, I was, I was thinking about this, how, how you can be living somewhere and you just get used to it, right? Maybe if you're living in Athens, you get used to uh, 90,000 people who show up here on Saturdays and you know what to do to get around the crowd. Maybe you just get used to your surroundings. You're like, yeah, that's normal. This is what, it, what it's like. Um, so I was thinking, you know, it's pretty ordinary but as we're moving up this mountain. And we're hiking, we're hiking. And it's, it's like, wow, it's getting hard. I'm not sure we should have done this. But, you know, you're halfway up and you're like, we can't turn around now. And we keep making our way up. And you expect on a hike like that to get to the top and if you've done other hikes like this, 
to sort of see your surroundings, have an awesome vantage point, maybe see off into the distance in good ways, whatever, like that kind of experience. But we got to the top of this mountain and it was totally different. It was the most spectacular sight I've ever had on a hike like this. And I've been in some pretty cool spots, I'm not going to lie. And, and I, I think mostly because it was so surprising. We got to the top of the mountain and instead of seeing like way down into the distance, it leveled off and there was this spectacular crystal clear body of water. There was a lake on top of the mountain that you had no idea, it was just completely hidden. There's my one megapixel camera from back in the day that can't do it justice to what it was like to walk up to the top of a mountain and see this. And we just sat there, maybe mostly because we were tired, but we sat there and just took it in for days, not for, for hours, not days. We didn't camp there. Now I paint this picture for you because I think it's really important for us as we're in the book of Ephesians, that we're kind of in, some, in the middle of some truths that we would be pretty at home with if, you're, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. These are all dynamic truths about the gospel, about what Christ has done, but they can become pretty ordinary to us, pretty routine. And I want us to sort of to use this metaphor, to move up the mountain, to realize what might seem kind of ordinary, to push us a little further today, up to the top of the mountain, to look over the lake and be saying to ourselves, now this is spectacular. And to do that, we have to sort of reset our minds. Or maybe, as Paul will do today, sort of have us take a step back and listen again to what he's actually saying. Because if you were with us in chapter 2 last week, you'll see a lot of what he's going to say today is just a reminder of what he just said. In fact, he begins Ephesians 3 this way. And again, he didn't number this, the numbering in the chapters and things came later. But you'll see that there's a definite break in the text. Look at verse 1. It says, for this reason. See that there? Now, skip down to verse 14. Look at verse 14. What does it say right there? For this reason. So that's, think about it like end caps. You have verse 1, verse 13 that sort of form this section. And that's the reason I think there's a chapter break there. That make us say, okay, he's got something to say right here. And it's almost like a diversion. Because he, he's, a, in, in verse 14 he says, for this reason I bow my knees to, and, and, and so what he's doing in verse 14, he's saying, for this reason, pointing us back to all he said through the letter, all these truths that he's laid out. He's saying, for this reason, I bow my knees. He's, he's saying, for this reason, it's time for us to pray. And I've got something I want to pray. And, and so come back next week, you'll, you'll hear about that. In verse 1, he's, he's trying to get there. He's like, for this reason. But somehow, moved by the Holy Spirit in his writing, he goes on to a diversion here where he says, for this reason. And then he kind of like stops. I'm about to pray, but you need to hear something first. I almost called this talk, like, when it's time not to pray. <laughs> because, because for some reason, he said, I can't pray just yet. I need you to hear this again. So in verse 1, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, 
a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. I want to I show you five things about the gospel. Five things about the magnificence of the gospel this morning. That if we push out of our mindsets and out of what we might take to be ordinary, if we move past that and we look at the gospel and let it just sit in front of us this morning, that we'll say, wow, that's spectacular. And there's five aspects I want to point out. And the, the first is the sustaining nature of the gospel. Because Paul says here, I'm a prisoner on behalf of Christ. He's, he's in prison. He's suffering. And he's saying that, let me just pause there for a second. Let me take you back to make sure you understand all of Paul's story because this is really important to have his story in the back of your mind. A lot of you, you know his story. You've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times probably. Some of you, you're like, okay, tell me about this, Paul. Maybe I've heard a little, a little bit about him, okay? So even if you've heard his story hundreds of times, it should never get old, right? Our story should never get old. Our story from going from death to life, that doesn't get old. I, I know like in, in some of the settings I've been in recently, we've been making it a habit of people sharing their testimony, their story of how they met Christ. Man, those are the best to hear people's experience and how that goes. So make that a habit. I mean, I think that's a good practical thing. Like, any, anyways, I'm getting off track, but Paul is, uh, his former name was Saul. He was the Jews of all Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the scripture says. Uh, he, t he was so zealous for the law that when he saw these Christian sects popping up, he had nothing to do with Christ or believing he was the Messiah. And when he saw these people believing and following that new way, he started persecuting them. He, he wanted to squash out this new, you know, this new movement that was taking place. And so he goes around putting them in prison, uh, possibly, you know, most notably when, he, when he's standing before Stephen, who's being stoned to death. He's, he's giving his approval. He's helped bring people to their death. And he's on his way to do more of this work when he's met on a road to Damascus by the Lord himself. And Jesus blinds his eyes. You know the story, right? He blinds him so that he, he cannot see. And he says, Saul, Saul, you think you're protecting me. You're persecuting me. And so at that moment, uh, he starts to uh, submit to the lordship of Christ, to believe in Jesus. And at the same time, God is speaking to another man named Ananias. And he says to Ananias, I need you to go to, to meet Saul. And that's, that's funny in itself. Read, read that again, right? Isn't that funny when, Saul, when Ananias is like, uh, God, I know it's you, but, you got, but and I know you know a lot of things, but this one you, you have incorrect. He's like, you can't go. You can't go to him. Haven't you heard? He's killing people. God says, no, that's who I want you to go see. And, and he says, I'm going to read from, it's Acts chapter 9, verse 15. He says, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he, meaning Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's saying, this guy who seems beyond my reach, I have a mission for him. 
My mission is for him to go to the Gentiles with the message of the gospel. And so Paul, from that moment on, goes on this mission to lead Gentiles to faith in Christ. To tell them exactly what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, that there's this new thing happening. I mean, this is new in their day. To say that, that God has opened up a door for the Gentiles. So that all people can come into the family of God. And this is the mission he's on. The, the, the church at Ephesus is very familiar with this. He helped start this church in Acts chapter 19. They become very, very close. In Acts chapter 20, when they depart, everyone's crying. You can read that story about the, uh, the elders from Ephesus. They're with Paul. He's leaving. They're, they're they're, they have a tight bond between Paul and this church. And he says, before I pray, I need you to know, yes, I'm a prisoner right now. And yes, it's on your behalf. Why is it on behalf of the Gentiles? Well, uh, from all through Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, there's, there's Jews that arise. And when they see he's trying to reach out to the Gentiles, they're trying to do everything in their power to stop him. They're spreading rumors, they're, they're uh, causing um, all, all kinds of commotion to get Paul put in prison, which eventually, in Acts 21, they see accomplished. And that's why Paul is in prison right now. He's in Rome, he's writing this letter, and he's in prison because there's Jews who have come along and said, in Acts, Acts 21, you can read this, where, where they say, Paul is teaching things about this Jesus Claiming he's the new temple. He's, he's messing up all of our ways. And they get him put into prison. And so here's this church. Here's this apostle who are very, very close. And I want you to see how the gospel sustains us in suffering. Look at verse 13. Again, these are kind of the bookends. And it's important to get this context here because this, this is what encapsulates all he's going to say right here. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So yes, I'm a prisoner. Yes, God's called me on this mission. But listen, I understand. Because know how he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. Because that's exactly what he is. He's a prisoner of Rome, but he, instead he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Rome hasn't done this. The Lord has been sovereign in me being put in this position as prisoner. When you think about your circumstances, we often need that sort of shift in mindset. To not look at them and say, oh, why, why, why am I in this job? Why am, I, why am I in this crazy family? Why am I in this crazy circumstance? To shift our mindset from looking at things as like through our circumstances and to see them as I'm owned by the Lord. And as he wishes to use me and move me, this is him at work. And I will submit to his lordship. And so that's what Paul has done here and he's saying the gospel will carry you through suffering. 
the gospel will sustain you. And as you see me in this position, it hasn't changed anything about what I have to say, what I believe, or what you need to hear. So what is that? And the second idea here, second part of the gospel I want you to see is the mysterious nature of the gospel. Look at verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Have you heard the, the term mystery before? That pops up in Paul's writing from time to time. We, we sang some songs this morning that use that term. I kind of sought that out on purpose to think about how the gospel is a mystery. Now we know that the law is not really a mystery. That, that's what we, we're, we're drawn to. <laughs> we're drawn to the law. We're drawn to, okay, give me the black and white nature here of uh, knowing that if, that if I follow this, I'll be okay. Like, it, give me the check boxes to know this is right, this is wrong. And the gospel is a mystery because it's not that. Uh, Paul uses the word mystery different than the way in which we would probably use the word mystery. We think of mystery like watching a movie or TV show that's a mystery in nature, a whodunit type, right? And we think about, or we, we try to come up, I, I think maybe it was so-and-so or uh, maybe it was so-and-so and, and this is what happened and we come up with our thesis and it's still a little bit unknowable. Sometimes we get to the end and we still don't know that's a mystery. In his context, he used it specifically, uh, and it was used specifically in, in the first century to denote religious mysteries, uh, mystery religions that were like this. As an outsider, you would look at that religion and you would say, I don't know what they do or what they're about. They keep it a secret. Okay? And Paul's saying, that's what it was like. And in those mystery religions, um, people would be initiated. And when they're initiated into the religion, then they know all the things come to light about what they're about and what they believe. And Paul is saying, this is a mystery in that sense. Except here's the crazy part about the gospel. What was unknown to us before is now known, but not just to the initiated, to all people it's being made known. Okay, so keep, keep reading with me. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's saying that mystery... Of the gospel, it wasn't known. But now in his day, it's being made known. Verse 6, and he spells it out for us. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. 
That's the gospel. He's saying that, that these people who were far off from God, that's what Ephesians 2 tells us, these people who were cut off from God, who had no hope, they're being brought into the family of God, and they're now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ. Now, this isn't new news. Because you're saying, wait a second, Paul's saying this wasn't known beforehand, but now it's known. And then I want to say, well, make sure you understand what he's saying. It was known from the beginning that somehow Gentiles were a part of God's plan. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, when he calls out Abram, and he says, I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And that becomes his people, the people of Israel. He says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, listen to this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, through his family, through this family that God's setting up. How is that going to happen? Well, no one has really understood this plan of God, Paul says, until this moment. I could go through a lot of other references in the Old Testament that speak to this idea that, that God was doing a work to bring the Gentiles into the family. But what Paul is saying is until God said, Paul... Go to the Gentiles. This full revelation of what was happening was not made known. You remember the stories when the Gentiles first start to come to faith? The Jews find them and they're like, wait, you received the Spirit? You received Christ? And they're like, yes. And, 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 and in fact, some of them hadn't received the Spirit. And they said, you need to receive the Spirit. And then they see the fruits of the Spirit in their life. And they're like, this is amazing. Because... In the world in which they lived, it was us and them. And them were excluded from the family. You can imagine what that would feel like to be an outsider looking in. I don't know. I don't, I don't have that experience very often where I'm an outsider. But every now and then it happens where I'm new to something. I'm looking in and, and I don't fit in. I don't. I, and that's how it was. That was their world. And Paul is saying now, this mystery is being made, made known, that God was working in a way to bring Gentiles into the same, into, to be, look at these three things, okay, with me. Fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers in Christ. He used the same prefix in all three of those words. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers in Christ. Fellow heirs, we were once excluded from the family of God and the covenant he had with his people. Now we're in the family. If you know Christ, you're in the family. And all the promises of God belong to us. All the inheritance and the legal status and standing that belong to the children of God belong to us as fellow heirs. Fellow members, we were once outsiders, but we've been grafted into the family. We aren't just distant cousins or despised in-laws. We are in the family in the same positional standing as all of God's children. We're fellow partakers. 
of the promises of Christ. All God is, you think about this, all that God is and his glory and his greatness and his brilliance, all that God is, you have access to. We're fellow partakers in that. All that God is, not only all that God is, but all that God has and all his richness and abundance, we have access to. We have access to all these things in Christ because we are partakers in Christ. So why has Paul stopped his prayer? It's because we need to hear this. We need to move up the mountain, if you will. We need to see the spectacular nature of the gospel, of what we've been offered in salvation through Jesus. That we're no longer outside. We've been brought near to him. And he's crushed that wall of hostility that's separated Jew and Gentile, what the theologian John Stott calls double union. That meaning Jew and Gentile coming together as one people and one Christ. So the gospel is mysterious in nature. It's also rich in nature. Look at the richness of the gospel in verse 7. We'll we'll look through this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. Paul was always very quick to point this out, that he's the least of the saints, chief of sinners. And it's important he does that, I think. As, as a man who, who wrote most of the New Testament, much of the New Testament, and as a man we hold up very highly, he's saying, look, I'm no different than you. <laughs> In fact, it's, if you think I'm good, it's quite the opposite. As I related his story, we know that. As one who persecuted the church, he's the very least of all the saints, he says. But if But if Paul is is within reach of the gospel, anyone is in reach of the gospel. I want you to hear that this morning. He says, I'm the least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. He's He's saying that again. This is my mission. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I love that so much. We're going to come back to that. Verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone. Underline everyone because... That's what we overlook. That's what we forget about in our context. We don't get it that this is revolutionary because Paul is saying this gospel is for all people. What is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? I love that word unsearchable. I love that as I read uh, four or five translations of this text... None of them use the same word to translate here for unsearchable. <laughs> it was different. If you were reading along with me, you didn't, I'm reading the ESV. If you, if you read another uh, version, more than likely there's another word put in place there. Uh, I believe it's the NIV that says boundless. There's another version that says inexhaustible. Another one that says inscrutable. Another one that says unfathomable. The word means not to be tracked out. The unsearchable riches of Christ. My my brain thinks weird sometimes, so forgive me. But picture yourself as an alien, okay? Any kind of alien, it doesn't matter if you're green, 
Chewbacca, whatever. You're, you're some kind of alien. Um, was Chewbacca an alien? I don't know. Anyways, um, you're, you're placed down into earth as an alien, and you're told to go search out earth. Go explore. Maybe you have a couple maps. Go explore. Think about how crazy that would be. Just, there'd be so much. I mean, we think about it in our terms. Like, I was thinking about in my terms with my kids. I took them into this, like, huge playground thing a, a few years ago. And, and when I took them there, I mean, it was the biggest playground you've ever seen. Just huge. And, and they only had made it through, like, one little section of the playground in, like, a couple hours. For them, that's, like, crazy because they can be all over this worship center in two seconds. Um, if you don't believe me, I'll show you afterwards. <laughs> And, and so what about if you go to, like, New York? New York's a great example for, for a city in the U.S. where if you go there, you're like, I could spend weeks here. Maybe another historical uh, city in Europe. Or, or, I remember uh, feeling like there was so much to see and do in Rome when I visited there. there like, you, there's so many restaurants. Just one city that, to, you could, like, I have to eat at all these. There's so, many, uh, so much art to see, museums, etc. And you feel like you could never search this out. So, so here you are, you're an alien, you've been placed into earth. And you think, I, you could go to, there, probably all of you have things you want to see in nature, right? Certain places, Yellowstone, uh, the Redwoods. That's just in the U.S. And, then, you know, I can name off all kinds. And, you know, going across the pond into other places. You could, I want to go to Australia one day. Maybe you're thinking that. But then you're like, then there's the seas, the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, it's, if you were an alien here on earth searching things out, it, it would feel unsearchable. But probably after enough time, you could get there to an extent. I don't know, maybe you turn, I don't know. But here's what Paul says, this word that's so hard to kind of grab its full meaning, saying when it comes to the riches of Christ, you'll never explore them fully. I love that. Just when you think, I've gotten to the end of God's kindness and his goodness, you're not there yet. You cannot reach a point where you say, okay, that's, that's all the love God has for me. That's all the kindness and, and the riches he has for me right now. You cannot reach that point. When you think you're there, you haven't gotten there. And Paul says, that's the message I'm preaching to you. This mystery of the gospel, when we look at it and we keep turning it over and over, it, it's unsearchable. And what I have for you is beyond your thinking. Fourth thing I want you to see is the manifold wisdom of God. In verse 10, it says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. This word manifold is very, very cool. It means multicolored, bright. It doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere else, except for one place, if you go back into the Old Testament, and it's not like... You have to read the um, Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's the simpler version of this word is used in the story of Joseph. What's the, 
what's the coat he gets? What do they call it? The coat of many colors. That, that's like the closest we have to, to, to that word anywhere else in the Bible um, in that meaning. It, it means, uh, think of a, a tapestry that, that where you have all kinds of threads woven together. I'll go back to John Stott. He says this, the church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society. And the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. That's so cool. When you think about our, our coming to church and our gathering here on Sundays, does it register with us that God is painting a picture here? Right? Because it gets even better. Who is this? This manifold wisdom of God might be made known, in verse 10, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who's that? That's the angels. This work of God, the church, is being put on display for the angels. So those angels that are around God's throne who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Those angels are looking at what God is doing in the church and they're going, Wow, have you thought about that? That we're on display, we're like this canvas that God is painting and brushstroke by brushstroke as people are added to the church, to his family. Someone in South Asia with the Bing people added to the family, it's a brushstroke. Somebody in Africa, someone in the Middle East, someone here in our town being put on the canvas on display and seeing these people all as one body. This is this beautiful picture that God is putting on for the angels. It's those angels that are, are there with God, and it's also those angels who are with the enemy. Don't miss that. There's fallen angels, the Bible tells us, and for those angels, they look at this picture of the church, and they say, and they know, where we thought we had won, we have lost. Fifth idea I want to bring out here is the access we have because of the gospel. The gospel is so rich and so powerful, so full of mystery, yet we cannot miss what it provides us for those who accept it, and that is access to this rich, kind God. In whom we have boldness, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This God who is so full of abundance and has, so, most of the time we think of people who, who have much, that, that we, and it's true, we usually have small access to them or no access to them. But this God who has so much and done so much, we have, we can have boldness to come into his presence because of Jesus. Now, let me give you just a few quick responses to what we see in this passage. The first, just to make this really practical for us to think through some things. Okay, we, we hear this, we hear what Paul is saying, what do we do now? First, I think we need to go. 
We need to use this access. If the Lord has given us the opportunity and, and it says, come before me. In your time of need, come boldly before the throne. Let's do that. I know there's people in here who are suffering. And you don't, you're not where Paul is. You're not being, you're not in a place where you can just frame it and say, oh, I see how the Lord's right in the middle of this and what he's doing. You're, you're more of a questioning stage. Come to the Lord. You have access to him. Second thing is this should change the way we view the church, right? Because uh, it's just like me on that, on that mountainside going up the mountain. And, and I, again, if, if you were from that place in Vermont, you'd be like, yeah, this is what I see every day. But for us to understand as you move up that mountain, you get to the top where there's this beautiful lake. You're, this is spectacular. For us to understand the spectacular nature of the church, it's ordinary but extraordinary. The gospel, it can become ordinary to us, but it's, it is anything but. Third, I think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's what it's been said through the, through the ages, preach the gospel to yourself. We cannot allow the gospel to escape us. We must go back to its revolutionary nature in that we were far off from God. We had no hope and understanding the amazing grace that God has for us. I once was lost and now I'm found. That has to be preached to us daily. And then finally, I want to invite you into the family of God. You've been given access through Jesus. The Bible says if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you're here today, you've thought about what it means to, you know, uh, be a Christian, you've explored it maybe a little bit. God says, I'm offering you a way to have richness and abundance in me. And what I'm asking for you is to realize that you cannot get there on your own. It's a mystery. We have to give up. We have to stop doing. And that's when Jesus says, okay, you can now accept this, this gift of grace that I have by dying on the cross for your sins and then coming back to life. So if you've never invited Jesus into your life to save you, to forgive you of your sins, I invite you to, to, to move that direction. I can help talk to you about that. You can come find me afterwards or talk to someone who, who you came with this morning. We'd love to do that. Let's pray. Lord. Would you remind us again of the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your church? And would you allow those truths to sink into our head and to our heart, to change everything about us? And Lord, we stand in awe and in thankfulness for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.